Let's talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Ant-Man, released in June 2015, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach in conversation with Killian Murphy, Martin Scorsese appearing as himself in an advert for Studio City, or Jennifer Aniston in She's Funny That Way instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Ant-Man when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. Right up there with Guardians of the Galaxy and the First Avenger, essentially a belting crime caper comedy with ridiculous tech, everyone's perfectly cast, and in amongst the gags it really does tie up the Hydra phase effectively. That's why I had to say about it though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Ant-Man, it's Quizmaster and podcaster Ben Baker. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on the internet doing noises out of my mouth with Phil Catterall in a podcast called Don't Let's Chat. Just type Don't Let's Chat in your podcast catcher of choice. And I've got BenBakerBooks.org as well, where I sell various tomes about TV and all fun stuff. Indeed, many things that uh, crop up on this show uh, with alarming regularity. Okay, so before we go any further, Ben, what happens in Ant-Man? It's a film about this young Geordie lad at a venue called Biker Grove who is blinded in a horrific paintball incident by his friend Duncan. And, and uh, oh, uh, sorry, I was thinking of Ant-Man. Why I? Well, you were also thinking incorrectly because he wasn't blinded by Duncan, but anyway, that's well, by the by. No, Ant-Man is about an ex-con played by gorgeous Paul Rudd, that is his name, who's down on his luck, fresh out of Chalky, and he's, he tries to go straight, and basically he can't get any work because he's a jailbird, and so he does one last job. He breaks into a very big house where he steals a special suit, which it turns out has amazing properties and can shrink him to a miniature size. And from there, the humour and adventure arises. Well, indeed it does, but Ben, how much did you know about Ant-Man before seeing this film? The only thing I knew about Ant-Man was not about the character but about the torturous history of it getting to the screen, which I presume will come to later on. But about the character, no, not not a lot at all, really. Well, it's really, really strange because the original Ant-Man was sort of done and dusted as a character by the late 60s. The whole point of Hank Pym, who was the original Ant-Man, was he kept inventing new suits and new technology and so on. So he went through a number of incarnations like Goliath and Yellow Jacket. I think he was Yellow Jacket for most of the 70s, but Scott Lang, who's the Ant-Man in this one, is the second one. Apparently, it was introduced in 1979. He made, I think, one appearance in the Avengers, not as an Avenger, and then was in a couple of other comics, but he never really had his own title. And I wasn't really aware of him for a very long time. I knew that the old Ant-Man had existed, because sometimes they'd rerun old stories, but he was really, really... Both Ant-Mans were a second-tier character. I remember Empire describing when the film was formally announced Ant-Man as an unloved character. And I think that's true. I think the original Ant-Man belonged to another age of storytelling, of comics and so on. And nobody really much cared. And I remember, because we are coming on to the production history in a minute, when I first heard, long, long time ago, it was going to be an Ant-Man film, I thought, 
what? Mm. I really didn't understand who it was for or why. I found the whole idea a bit too clever, clever, really. And I suppose we should just get it out of the way, because when I first heard about it, it was mentioned by Joe Cornish, who was originally one of the co-scriptwriters with Edgar Wright, and maybe in the frame to co-direct at one point, but this was around the time of Adam and Joe Go Tokyo, I think, which was that 2003? Yeah. Or was it yeah. even earlier? No, 2003, yeah, that's when BBC Three launched, and yeah, they were kind of already moving away from the Adam and Joe partnership at that point, and you know, Joe Cornish obviously had ideals on Hollywood, and his name has been attached to some baffling things. Like, obviously, he's credited with co-writing the Tintin rotoscope weird Spielberg movie. Oh, yes, yeah. Taking over from Moffat, obviously, who ran off to do some job or other. I don't remember what that was. I'm sure it wasn't important. And, of course, this Ant-Man, which, as you say, like, unloved is a strong term, perhaps, but I think it fits very much in the same wheelhouse as Iron Man when that was first announced, because, again, like, we knew nothing, really, unless you read the comics quite heavily. Iron Man was just another character you'd vaguely heard of, you know, where at least there was a bit of history sort of in, like, Hulk, Spider-Man, etc. You know, like, there was there was a bit of backstory which everybody knew, even if it was just from, you know, parodies on Three of a Kind or something, you know. <laughs> so I feel it does definitely, it shares a, a scrappiness with that first Iron Man film. But that's where the story gets really, really weird, because now I should point out, none of the people involved have ever ever spoken directly about what went on no. but sort of reading between the lines from the commentary on Ant-Man and a couple of other things that have been said by some of the Marvel Studios kind of head honchos and also with some things Joe Cornish has said generally the impression is that I mean the original pitch for the film goes way back before they started the Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah. I think at one point it was actually going to be a completely standalone thing and then it got co-opted into the Marvel Cinematic Universe because obviously Edgar Wright was on a real high at that point. Well, yeah, yeah. And it sounds as though they kept developing it while, you know, there was this whole slate of other films that had to be done first. Because obviously, you know, you've got to do the Hulk first, you've got to do Captain America yeah, and yeah. so on. Again, they're the, no pun intended, banner heroes. <laughs> you know, they are the ones that people go, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, I'll give that, yeah. you know, a ten quid of my time. But Ant-Man shows up in phase two and it sounds like the, by that point... Things had developed so much with the whole franchise that it kind of left the original script behind. And it was sort of... It sounds like it would have been more an Edgar Wright film than a Marvel film, and they just couldn't quite agree on it. That's the general impression that I get. And also, I do wonder, if you look at around that time, he also did the Scott Pilgrim film, which is a good film, but it does not it tally bombed. with it this kind of comic book adaptation. I think that's the issue, really, is that things just spiralled beyond their original vision. Mm. And also, the other thing was, when Paul Rudd signed on, I don't know if it was part of the contract at all, but he got to do a once-over on the script. I can well believe that he added quite a bit to it. Well, I think the general impression that Kevin Feige particularly gives was that without that original script, there would have been no Marvel Cinematic Universe because mm. without them even being aware of it, it set the tone for what they were going to do. But by that time, the tone of the actual script didn't fit anymore. Well it's interesting you bring up tone because that's something uh, I was going to mention later on because uh, you know when I, I remember that oh yeah man that was a funny film and then obviously went back to watch it for this and it's so much darker a setup than you remember. I mean obviously other than this sort of brief flashback to the 80s with Howard Stark and Peggy Carter and a computer faced Hank Pym you know <laughs> 
<laughs> we come to the modern day and, you know, Scott's having the seven bells knocked out of him in prison. And then, he's you know, he comes out of prison and he's looking for work and he can't get work because he's an ex-con and everything. And it does feel like, oh, that's an interesting way of going in. And everything's got this weird yellow tint, like The Wire. Well, you mentioned The Wire. Did you notice who's in it? Avon Barksdale is one of the cops. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Bit of a career turnaround for Avon, isn't it? Yeah, I know. He's, he is Porter turned gamekeeper. But obviously, Adam <laughs> McKay's name, Adam McKay, is it? That is on there, who's obviously more known at that point. Now he's done the big short and Vice and everything. But back then, he was just the guy who did the films with Will Ferrell, mainly. Anchorman and stuff like that. And the casting feels more like one of his films. I mean, you've got weird people in like... Little cameras, like the guy who's his boss at Baskin Robbins, who fires him, is Greg Turkington, who is better known as Neil Hamburger, this kind of really out there sort of comic character. Later on, you've got Garrett Morris, who's doing a brilliant callback to an SNL sketch where he played Ant-Man. You've just got this kind of weird, dark, you know, but very modern New York that's just like, take, you know, it's not, it's not softened up at all. Well, you've hit on something that I was really going to emphasise here, which is that I think the tone and the fact that this is so different to the films that surround it is really important because if you look at the Phase 2 films, you know, in Phase 1, even the first Avenger, despite being pretty much a costume drama, they're all straightforward superhero films. Yeah. And then when they move on to phase two, the three that they do that carry on exactly like that don't really work. As in Iron Man 3, Thor, The Dark World, and Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm. But you've also got Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which is essentially like a kind of political thriller. Yeah, it really is. It's a 70s spy uh, drama at its heart, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a comedy, but it's also a proper sci-fi movie. And this, which is basically a crime caper movie with, as you say, with some very dark tinges. I mean, one thing that really struck me was, you mentioned Scott being beaten up at the start, and it's established that although him and his gang, because we should just say for anyone who didn't quite pick up on this, it's quite subtle. Scott Lang in this, who's more a petty thief in the comics, but in this he's kind of a like a tech Robin Hood it's, yeah, figure it's, it's who picks cracker. on big businesses that have sacked loads of people and yeah. so on. Yeah, there's always something a bit sexy and a bit mysterious about safe crackers. Like, it's a non-violent crime, so they're kind of, you know, it's a bit James Bondy. so so, yeah. so straight away, because obviously you have to look at him and go, good guy. Well, that's the thing. Him and all of his gang, it's made clear that although they're comical figures, they are very effective criminals. Mm, yeah, yeah. They don't, you know, their plans are perfect. They cope with distractions perfectly. There's a great scene where one of them robs a cop car when the cops arrived yeah. <laughs> to get them off the scene. Everything like that. There is no comic bungling to what they do. It's just they happen to do things like degenerate into an argument about the logistics of time. Titanic and it's about how to crack the safe. Yeah and I think that's in part because uh, the casting throughout the entire film bar one character which I'll come back to I think he's absolutely superb and he's he does take from a comedy pool more like Michael Payne like Martin Donovan who gives a, a really good shit house. everyone's just well picked and so they've got this kind of nice like you, you don't question the friendship even though they're all very different his little gang you know it all fits and I think that's really interesting I mean part of it as well is that there's the scene at the beginning where they bring in Hank Pym to see what Darren Cross, who's the, the baddie of the film, is doing with his technology. And it is so like something out of Robocop. 
it could be a scene from Rook genuinely like and you know he's nasty because he, he experiments on little baby lambs it's like we know he's nasty and yet he's a bit too Lex Luthor partly because he's bald and partly because he's a scientist and stuff like that but also the actor whose name I've already forgotten is rubbish <laughs> All right, it's not rubbish. It's just I I don't feel he's there's not enough menace from him. That's the only sort of downside I would say about this film. Everyone else in the cast is absolutely spot on. They are well, especially Evangeline Lilly, who I yeah. will admit when I first heard she'd been cast as the Wasp, I thought I can't really see that, and she's perfect. She's spot at all mm. of her timing, all of her reactions, all of her looks are just brilliant, and she gets to get even better in the sequel, Ant Man and the Wasp. But obviously, we'll save that for. You know, when we actually come yeah. to that. But I think it was more because... I'm wondering if it's because I hated the ending of Lost so much. <laughs> and for a long time for me, she was always Kate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of when I heard she was Kate is like, thank God she's doing and going to do a role that will basically replace or equal Kate, in at least. I stayed up till 6am to watch that finale live on stream. <laughs> I don't it forgive It was 5am last time I asked you. All right, fine. <laughs> we went on till 6am. Shut up. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's a bit of a thankless part, really. Because obviously it builds up. Like, we know she's going to be the Wasp, if you've read the comics or whatever, which I didn't know. But, you know, like, obviously from now I've seen the sequel. And so that's when she gets to have the most fun. At this point, she's still quite... She's still got to be... She's playing the sides. And she does it brilliantly. And Michael Douglas, I think, is fantastic as Hank Pym as well. Yes, which, yes. I, I, he's got that right kind of, like, just below the surface. So much anger and resentment about being ousted from S.H.I.E.L.D. and his own company. And as we find out, losing his wife, the original Wasp in the Quantum Realm, where yeah. Scott later ends up but finds a way out. So, you know, talk about setting up a sequel there. But he just plays it with that right kind of simmering. There's so much rage inside him, but with an air of calm. I think that's actually, you know, when I say, uh, is it Corey Stoll who plays... Uh, yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, uh, Darren Cross. That's the menace he doesn't have. It's just missing that while as Hank Pym, you look at him and you see the gear. I mean, it's exactly the same as, again, back to Iron Man 1, Robert Downey Jr. You, you thought, ooh, will that work? And you look at him and that face expresses a lifetime of regret and work and ignoring his family and pain. And it's just all there, isn't it, on screen? I couldn't imagine anyone else doing that part. Once you've seen it, you absolutely cannot imagine anyone else, Hank. But, I mean, we talk about, you know, the darkness and the anger in his performance and so on, but it's really, really bloody funny throughout it. I mean, I oh, can point yeah. to, when I went to see it, I remember the whole cinema erupting at when they're first discussing the plan to basically fry all the servers that power because Darren Cross is developing kind of his own kind of rival suit that he's going to sell to arms dealers. It's sort of based on Yellow Jacket, Hank Pym's Yellow Jacket from the comics. When they're going through the plan and Hank says, we're going to need to get the crazy ants to shut down the servers, the whole cinema erupted because it was like the sort of thing you see George Clooney planning in an Ocean's Eleven movie, but involving lots of ants. Yeah, but again, it's it's the way he plays if he played it like we're gonna have to get the ants it wouldn't be funny because he's got that gravitas because he's got that darkness when he says stuff be like that and again everyone's gone through some dark times so everyone's much funnier as a result you know (laughs) for going through these journeys
And there's also the most outstanding sequence of the whole thing. I mean, there is the whole chase at the end, but the sequence where he first tries out the suit and goes through, I think in order, I think it's a bath, a nightclub, a vacuum cleaner, yeah. being chased by a rat. I can't work out how they did that because it's so convincing. It's not just a person on a big set. There's bits where I think it probably is that. There's bits where it's probably CGI. Bits where it's maybe false perspective. It seems that every shot, they've used what was ideal for that shot. That all added together means you can't see the join. It actually looks like he's gone small. Yeah, the scale is extremely well handled. Because again, obviously we're experiencing that with him. That's his first sort of shrinking when he's in the bathtub and he's got to get out. And it's just like, you do feel it. And I imagine even on the big screen, that would have been an extraordinary thing. And we should also mention while we're about it, as I say, the whole chase sequence at the end where they're trying to stop him getting away with the yellow jacket costume and it goes, starts off in mid-air, doesn't it? In a helicopter, goes mm. through lots of phases, ends up at his ex's house. Yeah. Where, kind of echoing a really dark storyline where a child murderer kidnapped Cassie in one of the comics and Scott had to rescue her. It's kind of nodding towards that, I think, but Darren Crossroad yellow jacket has Cassie Scott's young daughter and he obviously has bad intentions towards her and corners Scott's ex's new husband as well who's a cop who recurs throughout it who is an interesting character because he doesn't dislike Scott but he loses his patience with him over his refusal to stick to access arrangements and so on but in that even in that incredible long chase scene where they chase each other around the room constantly changing sizes there's things like a massive Thomas the Tank Engine (laughs) it's not massive to begin with it gets expanded in the fight, crashes out through the wall into the street. <laughs> One of the ants goes very large, runs yeah. out of the house, chases Avon for a wire who says that's a messed up looking dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's absolutely edge of your seat, but it's hilarious at the same time. Yeah, it, it is very hard, as as we know, to get comedy and action, the balance being right. You know, because there are lots of action films that are funny, like Die Hard is not a comedy, but there are a lot of funny bits in it. But to mash both of them in fact there are very few films that have done it and most of them have the marvel name attached and i think that's just getting good people in who who know because i mean you've got james gunn who came from comedy horror on the guardians films you've got the guys who came from community on the captain america films and here you've got peyton reed who the first time i saw his name was on mr show of course uh, yeah. and he did upright citizens again and he did our old pal weird al off of the 80s uh off of the pop charts short-lived children show he was one of them names i remember seeing a lot on the comedy programs that i liked it's interesting that obviously because edgar wright is a comic sensibility as well so obviously i feel his take would have been less funny weirdly i think he would have if not try not necessarily try to prove himself but there's definitely that whole uh aspect of you know playing with the big boy toys as scott pilgrim showed he makes excellent films but they're not necessarily for everybody i suspect ant-man's been watched by about 80 times more people than so scott pilgrim <laughs> <laughs> in the nicest way. I will be honest and say, though, I would love to see Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish come back and tackle something else, especially now they're moving on to new characters, because... Yeah, that would be great. Maybe they hit the bar with Ant-Man, but they're both capable of tremendous films, mm, yeah. and they both know their comics extremely well. Joe's got directorial background in Attack the Block as well, which is absolutely fantastic. A kid, and... kid who would be King's excellent as well. It's as close to a modern time bandits as I think it's possible to make. 
sick. It is genuinely very, very good. Well, if they gave them a more off the wall character, a more comic, do you know what? They could probably do Howard the Duck. So there you go. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Okay, Joe, if you're listening, please, please, please yeah. take our advice Let, on Let's board. start the hashtag now. Cornish for duck. Cornish duck? Cornish hen? I don't know. We'll think of something. It's in there. We'll work it out. <laughs> but speaking of fitting in with the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, this brings me on to my one real problem with the whole film, which is that I think it's a deliberate thing to emphasise that Scott is kind of, although he briefly teams up with the Avengers a couple of times, he's an outsider. Yeah. Hank and Hope are both outsiders. They want nothing to do with Tony Stark in particular. And because of that, there's very few references to everything else that's going on. I mean, there's a couple of things, like when he goes through a subway train, there's somebody reading about the events of Age of Ultron yeah. in front of a newspaper. I think it's something like, who's to blame for Sokovia or something like that. There's, you know, a couple of the usual gags, like I think Darren Cross refers to the Yellow Jacket technology as Tales to Astonish, which is the yes. first comic Ant-Man appears in. But there's not very much, apart from they suddenly realise from nowhere they need a piece of equipment that's in Tony Stark's possession. And so he needs to go to Avengers HQ to get it, runs into the Falcon, who basically kind of just says, hi pals, I'm up next, and has a fight with him. And he gets away yeah. with it, and that's all there is to it. I mean, it sets up for something quite important at the end of the film. I think yes. the whole scene jars badly, and I do know that at least one person that I spoke to about possibly doing one of these said that the only one they'd seen was Ant-Man, and they'd been enjoying it up until this bit they didn't understand came on. Right, okay. Where they were thinking, who's that guy? I don't... Are we supposed to know who he is? And whereas other films handle that so well, this is kind yeah. of... He's just plonked in front of you in a sort of like, say hooray, your best is here thing. And it doesn't quite work. I mean, apparently, uh, from what I, I've uh, a little bit of read, it's like they wanted Falcon to be in there. They actually said, can we use him? And they realised it would be good to bed him in. But it does feel like the sort of thing you could just take out that entire scene and go, here's a web extra. You could have used that out of context. It wouldn't have affected the film at all and the fans would have still got the you know the big avengers moment it doesn't slow the film down but it is very much a case of this is unnecessary you know and let's be honest as the films have crept up more and more in length you know i mean this one's just short of two hours i think i suppose you've got to remember your audience half of them are kids i know this is a 12 by the constant use of the word shit That seems to be like they said you can say shit, and so they say shit a lot. <laughs> it's a weird scene. I suppose it's only by the fact that the actors are so good that it just about squeaks through. I do think as well that, you know, mentioning the certificate, I have a feeling that, and this is made more explicit by Ant-Man and the Wasp, that the films are all aimed at everyone, but there are some that I feel are aimed more at other markets than others. You know, yeah. I mean, the most obvious examples being Captain Marvel, Black Panther and so on. I think this is aimed at, in some ways, a slightly older audience who kind of gets Scott and Hope's predicaments in life. You know, because yeah. it, it, it's never stated that way, but it's implied that Hope has had some kind of romantic involvement with Darren Cross and that you get the impression he might have been a bit abusive just from his character. Yeah. That's more in the sequel. But I do think that it was trying to give a slightly older part of the audience something to latch onto. And I think that's mm. echoed in one of the best gags in it that I doubt a lot of the younger members of the audience will really have noticed with a gag at all. It was when he says, I'm going to disintegrate you. 
And his phone says, play <laughs> Disintegration <laughs> by The Cure, which, you know, has Playing been in stitches, but up, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as funny if you're not familiar with, you know, what a depressing... <laughs> <laughs> no, and the fact that is track one on Disintegration as well, playing song. <laughs> You know, they didn't, they didn't go for the Hollywood skip to the hit. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I did like that a great deal. Music is a, a, a very important part of the film as well. The score is terrific and it ends with this brilliant sort of twangy, sort of shadowy men on a shadowy planet style instrumental, which is also hilariously called Tales to Astonish. As you were saying in the episode with Paul Abbott, music is such a big part of the Marvel films. It's interesting how they use just little bits to make very unique moments and that Cure one is definitely up there. Well, again, it's a thing I wonder, did they take any cues from Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who revival? Because that, very mm. sparingly, but it did use pop records in exactly that kind of way. Yeah. The people kind of forgotten now. You know, in, it's at the end of the world where they play the, the relic from Ancient Earth and it's Tainted Love by Soft Sound. <laughs> There's things like the Toxic in one episode as the master singing that Scissor Sisters song. I can't decide. Yeah. Even though I didn't know it, that fits perfectly and there are a few things in it that I think of obviously there's many things that form Marvel Cinematic Universe Joss Whedon being the primary one amongst them I think but mm. I do think there's a lot of Doctor Who and Torchwood in there as well which mm. is funny to think that that wouldn't be the first thing people would think of now no. at the time they would have been but you forget how phenomenal impact they had at the time as much as something like Iron Man did when it came out I think yeah, definitely. It's the Tenant era, certainly. Yeah, it felt very much on the... It broke out of that little... You know, because obviously they echo someone and people say it was good. But you always say that to people who aren't into it and they go, yeah, whatever, I'm not bothered. And it was the Tenant one where people started to actually go, oh, this is actually good. You know, this is actually strong writing and stuff. And then as long as you don't watch any episodes with Peter Kane. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Peter Kane was in this? <laughs> Do you remember the quantum realm? Do you remember it? <laughs> I mean, just before we move on to the post-credits scenes, there's one very interesting in the deleted scenes, which is amongst the potential buyers for the Yellow Jacket suits are the Ten Rings, who obviously played a big role in... It's mainly Iron Man and Iron Man 3. I don't think they yeah. mentioned Iron Man 2. And they've been referenced a couple of other times, and there is obviously coming up Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yeah. It's interesting that they, they just put them in for the sake of reminding people that they were there. But I think think that because this was kind of it was the very full stop under the whole Hydra thing yeah. unless you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. but that's another story so maybe they just didn't want people getting confused by that because there are casual references to one kind of terrorist organisation already why bring another one into it so but again I suppose a film that was made uh, in 1997 let's say did not have an eye on deleted scenes being there anyway so I feel when you make a film in the modern era you've always got your eye on this won't go away you know, this will be appreciated yeah. by the audience. It's meant for. Well, I think that's why we get the post-credit scenes now, which is the first one is simple but effective, where it's basically, I mean, Hope's been begging to, she actually wants to use the Ant-Man costume as part of the plan, and she keeps getting told, no, you're too important to the planning stage. And it later turns out it's because Hank won't let her because his wife had gone missing while she's being the Wasp. Yeah. But he shows her an updated Wasp costume. And again, eventually Lily being brilliant, look on her face. It's a mixture of astonishment, fear, and gratitude. Yeah. And it's a tiny scene. It's brilliant. It's interesting as well that Hope didn't call herself the Wasp in the comics. She called herself Red Queen. Yeah, because her mother Kind of because she had properties of 
both of her parents. Yeah. But yeah, they obviously went straight for the wasp with her. But the other post-credit scene ties in with the very end of the film where you think it's another heist plot being related to the gang, but it actually turns out to be Falcon trying to track down Scott. And then in a really weird post-credit scene that completely changes tone, you get Captain America out of costume, Falcon and Bucky Barnes. You don't know what they're talking about, but they sound really panicked. They need to do something about something. And yeah. they don't think they can contact Tony Stark. And Sam then says, I know a guy. And that's it. And like, what the hell are they bringing Scott into? I know. And that feels genuinely like he's from a completely different film in a different genre. It just feels like they've dropped in this really gritty bit of gangster movie. That just goes to show how malleable the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, really, isn't it? It's just like, you've got, as you, as you said before, this is, at its heart, it's a crime caper. It's a lovely, there's that lovely heist bit in it, you know, It's it, it, but it's, it's more than the sum of its parts, definitely. Considering, as you say, all them people, the scripts went through, and there are about three or four people apparently aren't even credited because of all these ridiculous directors, Guild of America rulings and stuff like that, or screenwriters or whatever. All those hands should not make an entertaining soup. This soup, even though it has some ants in it, is an excellent soup. <laughs> I feel I've lost the analogy there slightly. <laughs> well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Ben, if you had the ability to communicate with ants, what would you use it for? I would use it to silence. I'm going to fill the mouths of my enemies. Not kill, just silence. <laughs> and I won't say any names. I don't even want to know who your enemies are. As you know, my enemies are Joey Lawrence from Blossom. <laughs> Sex from Blossom. <laughs> <laughs> and oh I don't know let's say rude duck Ben thank you and Excelsior <laughs> Excelsior yourself sir if you've enjoyed this don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org